Welcome to Revealing Men, conversations that pull back the curtain, revealing the inner lives of men. I'm Randy Flood, psychotherapist and director of the Men's Resource Center of West Michigan. I'd like to welcome Zach Flood um, to Revealing Men podcast. He's an associate evaluator, therapist, and coach here at the Men's Resource Center. Zach and I specifically work together providing evaluations, parenting coordination, reunification counseling. <clears throat> We're starting up a parental alienation support group and do coaching and consulting and expert testimony. So Zach's specifically here <clears throat> to talk about this phenomenon of parental alienation. Um, we understand that this is a revealing men's podcast and we oftentimes focus on just men's issues. But we want to recognize as we talk about parental alienation that it not only affects fathers, but it also affects mothers. So we're going to talk about it more generally today so that we can um, have our listeners be able to understand that this is a, a, a phenomenon that, that impacts millions of parents. And um, we want to be able to give it special recognition today as we talk about it. So thanks for coming, Zach. Yeah, it's great to be here. Yeah. <clears throat> And you might recognize by that we share the same last name. So Zach is, of course, my son. So guilty as charged. <laughs> All right. Perfect. We're going to, we, Zach and I counsel and coach rejected targeted parents in parent parental alienation because it is probably one of the more stressful, painful, scary, and confusing dynamics a parent can face. Um, it's like watching your child die a slow death right in front of your eyes, um, emotionally and physically and spiritually. Um, and in that stressful process, there can be a lot of mistakes that can be made by really good and average range parents in these dilemmas that, um, they find themselves in that we're going to delineate and talk about in our work with coaching and counseling rejected and targeted parents. We work to help them, be, develop more resiliency and become effective advocates for themselves and their children, particularly when intersecting with the mental health and legal professionals. So the catch-22s play out in parenting and co-parenting and errors on both sides of the dilemma are often weaponized and used to further the alienation dynamic and manipulate mental health and legal professionals. So before we get into, into these specific dilemmas, Zach, I'm wondering if we can just start with a, um, defining parental alienation to our listeners and giving a sense of how that fits into what we call these resist and refuse dynamics. Yeah, parental alienation is a dynamic where, um, where one parent um, uh, poisons the child against the, uh, the targeted parent and labels this parent as unfit and unsafe and unworthy of love. Um, and so, uh, but the important thing to keep in mind is that parental alienation falls on a spectrum and that spectrum goes from alienation, of course, and um, goes all the way over to estrangement. Um, and that spectrum um, houses um, uh, what it manifests as what are called resist and refuse dynamics. And so that uh, encompasses everything. And those are the behaviors um, that are elicited or that are uh, emanating from these children that such as um, refusing to come over, um, bad mouthing and all these ways that children exhibit these behaviors um, that can be uh, 
observed by professionals. Okay. And so it's important to d- define the either side of that spectrum. Parental alienation is uh, what we mentioned, what I mentioned previously, but uh, estrangement is also um, another dynamic that can cause some of these res- resistant refuse dynamics. And so that is also another word for it is abuse. And so that can be um, uh, tangible abuse perpetrated by parents against these kids, such as neglect or physical <clears throat> abuse or domestic violence and all these things that would cause a child to exhibit these behaviors for legitimate reasons out of fear and out of, um, out of damage. So um, okay. just important to make sure that we have to, our, our job sometimes is to figure out where on the spectrum um, these cases right. fall. Yeah, we often get these uh, um evaluations that uh, come to Zach and I where that is that is a specific referral referral question which is to we have these kids that are resisting and refusing one parent says they're resisting and refusing because the other parents unfit they're abusive they're neglectful <clears throat> and and so the kid is responding in a normative realistic fashion and the other parents say, no, 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 I'm very fit. I'm, I'm actually a really good parent. I had a really good base rate relationship. And, and their child is rejecting me because they're trying to re- maintain a loyalty contract with the alienating parent. And so our job as evaluators is to approach them with multiple hypotheses, do uh, <clears throat> assessment interviews, um, gather collateral information. Zach, you do a lot of the collateral from um, documentation and then mm-hmm. do psychological testing and then write up a report with our findings. So mm-hmm. it's pretty intense evaluation, especially more recently with collaterals. Um, you can give a understanding to the, our listeners of what you're seeing with collaterals these days. Yeah. As, <laughs> as uh, technology and electronic commu- communication increases in our world, uh, writ large, uh, it's reflecting in a lot of these evaluations where hundreds or sometimes even thousands of pages of emails and texts and different types of communication and social media posts and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, down the line uh, get submitted to us to review, to um, corroborate some of the things that are being said in clinical interviews and try to reflect those and line them up with some of the things that we see in testing and trying to uh, formulate a a more robust uh, view of the family dynamics that are at play. Right. Yeah. Collateral documents are are growing in the 21st century. So yeah, mm-hmm. that becomes a pretty large part of what we do. So looking at um, parental alienation, again, helping us define it. Um, one of the things I like to say, it's like a psychological tumor that grows inside a child and runs the risk of metastasizing if left unaddressed. And so it's, it's a way in which these parents are inculcating the child and filling them up with false narratives about the history, um, what was going on in the marriage, all the way to giving them um, false beliefs about uh, a targeted parent. And they end up having this emotional response to hating and this polarized view of hating one parent, loving another parent. And in order to profess my love toward the, the preferred parent, I do that by hating the other parent. And so it's something that they internalize in that attachment process with the um, alienating parent. And that's a psychological construct or emotional construct inside them. And that grows and grows inside them if left unaddressed and untreated. So I'm wondering if you could say something, Zach, about the five-factor model in terms of how we look at trying to diagnose and rule in and rule out is a estrangement versus uh, alienation. 
Yeah, five factor model takes you through these five factors and and helps um, evaluators make a determination if alienation is present and it could be classified on that side of the spectrum. Um, so, the first uh, num first factor is the presence of a res resistant refuse dynamic. So that's some of the behavior that manifests in the child and some of the um, alienating behavior manifested by the by the alienating parent and trying to determine whether or not those are tangibly present in the case. Beyond that, you want to, the second factor is you want to establish um, whether or not there was a base rate relationship with um, the targeted parent. Was there a sense of connection? Was there love and affection at some point uh, in their history? It's hard for someone to claim alienation if they were never present in the child's life and they moved across the country, weren't in contact, and then all of a sudden coming back and then claiming alienation doesn't quite work that way. You have to right, have a right. relationship with them at some point. Um, so, so the next one that we want to look for is a lack of abuse. So on that estrangement, estrangement side of the spectrum, we have to um, rule that out as a possibility for the cause of the resistant refuse dynamics. Um, the fourth one is alienating behavior by the favored parent. Um, so we have to nail that down and make sure we have you know, examples of that, being able to have them um, reflected in the data and the clinical interviews that we have. Um, and finally, the, the, the behavioral signs of alienation in the child um, and making sure that that is, that is present and there are tangible ways that that can be observed um, right. in the relationship with the, with the targeted parent. Right. Uh, thanks. I mean, if you want to look, if you're a listener and you want to look at, again, this, we're not going to get into all of this, but we wanted to present the five-factor model. But if you want to see the, the, the fourth and the fifth one, and there are 17 parental alienating behaviors by, um, you can Google search uh, Mamie Baker, um, William Burnett, um, and um, you can find those out. And then the, the, five, the eight behavioral manifestations that show up in children, you can, again, Google eight behavioral manifestations. And again, that gives you kind of some diagnostic um, frameworks that as, as, as evaluators we look at. And so you can then kind of assess your own your own situation and see if um, through the five factor model, what you're, what you're dealing with. Are you dealing with a estrangement issue or are you dealing with an alienation issue? Mm -hmm. All right. And so the final thing we want to say before we jump into the, the catch 22s that, that, that parents get into um, is just trying to emphasize how important, how time is of the essence in these cases um, because of it being, like I said, a psychological tumor. If you got diagnosed with cancer and it was in one organ um, and you refused treatment or you didn't know you had it, guess what happens? It has, runs the risk of metastasizing and taking over your whole body. And that's the same thing that happens that we see in alienation is that when we get a case in, in, evaluate it if alienation has been going on for you know months to years and professionals been involved and perhaps not identifying it um there's been a lot of legal games going on to avoid being held accountable then by the time we see it we can see it as quite severe because <clears throat> mild cases kids will still be seeing going to parenting time moderate cases are going to parenting time but raising hell and sometimes physically destructive, locking themselves in the bedroom, things like that. And then severe cases is when you get kids that are refusing, defying court orders, um, running away, and things like that. So the longer you wait, that psychological tumor grows and the alienation gets worse. We want to make the point that time is of the essence. 
Yeah, it's notable that while it doesn't always happen in a perfect progression as you're right. as you're um, as you're describing, a lot of times it does, and you can see it over the course of a relationship and how it really does metastasize and grow to this point um, <clears throat> where you get to this final destination right. of refusal, and all of a sudden a parent is left not having any an average rage good parent is left not having any contact with with their child, and it's right. really really tragic, very tragic. Mm-hmm. So let's just go through these uh, catch 22s. I think we came up with five of them. Of course, you know, we, as we continue, most of this comes from, again, um, we're not professors offering theories. We read the material that professors produce, but we're clinicians. And so we are in the room. I've been doing evaluations and working since 1992 and seeing hundreds and hundreds of families. And Zach's been coming along in the last couple of years um, doing some work. So um, the work that we do is through observation. And so we see these dilemmas. We hear the parents teaching us, children teaching us, um, these families teaching us about these dilemmas in the work that we do. So that's what we want to highlight is what we've learned from the families that we've worked with. Mm-hmm. One of the dilemmas is, and have you talk a little bit about this, Zach, is that rejected parents are accused of either overparenting or underparenting. And again, remember, this dilemma is such that you're never, ever going to be in the right spot. You're either going to be deemed over or underparenting, and that those alleged mistakes are going to then be weaponized. Yeah, so it's 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 important to say that overparenting <clears throat> is what it might be labeled, but it's actually just parenting. And so, right. <laughs> uh, so um, right. there are efforts by a parent to just discipline, just to be um, to set boundaries and to say, nope, that's not okay in my house. And all right. of a sudden, you <clears throat> are not being um, seen as empathetic. You're not leaving space for their emotions. You are being abusive, intrusive. You're being an authoritarian when you're just saying, no, we can't have cookies before dinner. We're going to have to wait until after dinner. And all of a sudden you're not allowing them to, um, to live the life that they want to live. And so that's just how that stuff gets twisted. Um, but then under parenting is when a lot of these, um, targeted parents, step back because all they get this feedback that anytime they parent, they are seen as abusive and right. stuff gets misinterpreted. So they take a step back and they are, they're more laissez-faire. I'm just going to leave space for this, <clears throat> let this child um, just live their life. And then all of a sudden they are neglectful and then they are labeled as not being attentive and not, not giving enough care, not caring enough as a parent. And then they're labeled as underparenting and right. <laughs> is this, 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 this middle ground that just doesn't exist. And that right. becomes really problematic. Yeah. And, and as you talk about that, Zach, you know, all of a sudden I start having memories of these cases that we've worked and you probably do too, but one comes to mind where, again, what you hear from the children, alienated children, um, are often distortions, exaggerations. They're alienated children often are accused of lying um, but it's really not lying. <clears throat> what word we use is, is confabulation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's to describe that they're having to distort and exaggerate data in order to give a narrative to their preferred parent uh, that where they can get approval and appear loyal. So kids are forced psychologically and through an attachment process to distort information. They don't want to lie. They're not liars. But again, this is part of the disturbance. And I remember one kid telling me my dad is so controlling that 
we sit down to eat and we can't eat. We all have to sit down and, and we just have to wait and wait. The food's in front of us. And, and then we only can eat when he says we can. That's how much of a patriarch and how much of a controller he is. Fast forward, interview the dad. You probably remember this case, Zach. He's like, I said, can you explain your dinner time ritual? He goes, yeah. He says, it's pretty busy. We're all sitting around. We try to be democratic. Everybody helps out bringing food to the table. But then there's things that we forget. And we have a rule that we don't start eating till everybody's at the table. And we say grace. Mm-hmm. And so we, we, everybody finally sits down. And then we say grace. And then we start to eat. So again, that parenting process gets seen as overparenting because part of it is the story gets distorted. Yeah. And it's the confabulation is that is the narrative is there. Like you can see how some, a child can interpret something like that as I'm not able to eat, but you look at the broader context and it's just not clear. And I I think of another example is, um, is we had a case where a father was working, um, working on getting a trip set up for his family. Um, I want to take his kids on a vacation, but he's has experienced a lot of intrusion from, um, from the other co-parent and a lot of butting in and trying to sabotage a lot of the things that he has done with his kids. And so he just didn't tell anybody about this trip because he wanted to make sure he had that time with his kids. And then all of a sudden he gets the kids and says, Hey, we're going on a trip. And all of a sudden, he's it's interpreted as well. You didn't give us any time to plan this. You know, you're 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 springing this on us, and you're right. kidnapping <clears throat> us, and you're taking us away. We we can't contact anybody, and all of a sudden, we're held hostage when he's just trying to right. take his kids on a trip. Right. And it's just <laughs> just trying yeah. to go to a lake or something, you know. And right. all of a sudden, right. it's kidnapping. Right. So, yep. And then if they do the the right thing in co-parent and they share the details of the trip, they share the itinerary, then, then the alienating parent, the children's get together in this attachment process and begin making that trip a negative experience, anticipating that, Oh, you're going to be in the car so long. Um, And then all of a sudden this beautiful trip that's been planned with hoping a lot of anticipatory excitement now the kids are coming over and saying, we don't want to go because it's going to be terrible. Yep. Yep. And so then there's like, Poisoning the well. Yep. I, I'm not going to share the itinerary because this is what happens. And then, like you said, he doesn't share the itinerary. And then he's, because uh, he's ambushing them with a trip without any yeah. preparation. Yep. Exactly. So there's a no win situation with that. So number two is that you, you're either, litigious and are seen as equally contributing to a high conflict divorce, or you are conciliatory and accommodating and you see your parenting time diminished because your children keep actively rejecting you. And again, there's no, no safe, safe space right there. Yeah. A lot of times we see this because just normative co-parenting where consensus is reached and sacrifice and, 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 and middle ground is found in all these ways that co-parents naturally can work together to try to parent kids, um, it doesn't work. And so therefore individuals that are targeted, targeted parents have to go to court to get things done because that's the only way that like outside, outside authority can be put into a situation and, and people are held accountable. But right. at the same time, 
if you go that route, then all of a sudden, why, why can't we just talk about it? You know, why can't we just figure this out? How, why do you have to get the lawyers involved? Why do I have to pay my lawyer this amount of money? You're, you're draining me. You're bankrupting me because you're taking me to court every single week just to get right. your parenting time. And so you're, you're affecting my ability to parent when, when actually it's, right. it's, it's a necessity. Right. So yeah, the, and the kids, again, in an alienation dynamic, oftentimes parents are sharing uh, legal information to children. Um, look at, I got another letter from, from your mother's attorney. Um, and she's, you know, again, trying to take you kids to court, making you look like you're bad kids. And then the kid goes back to the, um, rejected mom's house and then they give her the riot act and saying, why are you taking dad to court? Um, you're so, you're so mean, you're, you're, you're taking all of our money. Um, and so, and then if you're not litigious, and you try to work with the alienating parent, then no progress is made and you end up losing increased parenting time and they're not coming over and there's these ongoing problems and you're just trying to get some help. Yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah Cause we have parents that come into situations and try to work with the other parent because they don't want to use the court. No one really wants to use a judge to make decisions in parenting. It's usually a last resort. Um, and so you have individuals trying to make that work, but the alienation dy dynamic is already set in and it's just like, as we talked about at the top of this podcast, it metastasized, just gets worse. And then, right. yeah. And, and, um, unfortunately, even though we would rather not, you know, family court gets a bad rap sometimes, um, you know, getting involved in family matters, but I have seen cases where, but for the authority of the judge, um, there would be no relationship with some parents that it is truly the judicial authority that provides the kind of accountability and the ability to, to make interventions and sanctions to hold an alienating parent who's hell bent on alienating. And sometimes they even have narcissistic qualities. They kind of think that they're above the law. Um, and will defy court orders, and then they go back in front of the judge, and I've seen judge sanction them economically. I've seen in really horrendous cases, judge put parents in jail for the weekend <clears throat> because it's just either you do something aggressive judicious, judiciously, or once these kids age out, then the potential is that that relationship with a loving, good enough parent is severed for life. So it's like all hands on deck to use mental health professionals and good legal representation to sometimes stop this, this psychological cancer from growing in your child. Well, I think it's important to mention, we didn't explicitly say this earlier. Um, we talked about the estrangement side of the, of the spectrum being abuse and neglect, but parental alienation is abuse and it has to be viewed as such is it's, 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 it is emotional and can be spiritual abuse to these kids is that right. they are internalizing this negative narr narrative about this parent that they actually truly love. And then all yeah. of a sudden they're not able to love this parent. And I don't know if anything, you don't want to rank abuse, but that's going to qualify. That's yeah. what it boils down to is that is abuse, emotional abuse to these kids. And it's hard, you know, physical abuse, there's broken bones and, you know, Verbal abuse, there can be, you know, documented words and such, but, you know, psychological abuse or in, in Michigan, there's the Child Protective Services and they have mental injury um, that, um, but in order to establish um, that bar or that threshold of mental injury, it's really, really hard to prove. Um, and we've had many cases where there's been, you know, 
15, 20, 25, I think is the highest, where <clears throat> false um, allegations of child abuse toward a targeted parent that gets unsubstantiated. Um, and what's going on is it's an alienation dynamic with psychological abuse, but they keep unsubstantiating what's not there, but they're not substantiating what is there because it's not being identified. And part of our evaluation sometimes can be a way to identify it. And then CPS is like, oh, that's what's going on, why we were unsubstantiating 15 of these. Yeah. 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 It's really, really quite striking when you see the list or you get the packet of all these reports and you read through hundreds of pages and all this work yeah. being done to unsubstantiate 15 cases when, right. yeah, yeah. The, real, the real abuse has to be identified. And it's, yeah. It's, it's like a. Yeah. It's an obfuscation of what's really going on. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Let's move to number three, which is you, um, the third dilemma is you stay open and experience the emotions of joy from acceptance. And then you also are open to pain from the rejection. So, this emotional openness as a rejected parent, you know, your kids see you at a basketball game and they want nothing to do with you. Um, but then they come to parenting time and then they're away from the alienating parent and they finally warm up in more mild and moderate cases. <clears throat> and then that attachment is established. And then when it's time for the parent, the child to go home, they shut, shut down and then they're, they're cold and rejecting the parent that leaves his heart open is in a, on a roller coaster mm -hmm. and it's just difficult. So, what do they do? Possibly say, I'm just going to shut down. This is too painful to be on the roller coaster. And they protect themselves from the pain by shutting down, but they block the opportunity for love and connection. Mm -hmm. Hence, there's the dilemma. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's something that all humans have to deal with sometimes. It's just, you know, is it better to have loved and <laughs> lost than to have loved it all? But at the same time, it's within this what adds this extra layer to it is this um, is the encapsulated delusional system that this child is in and you're right. trying to speak reason to it and, and trying to cut through all of the stuff that's going on and it's, it's, um, it's, it's not working. And, and so there's an extra layer of frustration that just gets piled on top of what you just described and it right. makes it just even that much more painful right. and, and hard yeah. to do, deal with. Yeah. So yeah, you, you leave yourself, open and then you can then get just angry and then you come across mm -hmm. as angry or you leave yourself shut down and then you can come across as aloof and distant and then that can be weaponized and say see your your parent your dad your mom is aloof and emotionally distant and therefore that's why the kid doesn't want to go over there but really it's a defensive structure to protect yourself from the pain of the rejection there's the emotional withdrawal, which could be just being distant emotionally and not trying to engage, but there's also the withdrawing of parenting time. And so we've actually seen some parents do that, um, one where there was a lot of allegations happening and the, one of the parents decided to reduce their parenting time is I'm going to, I'm going to voluntarily reduce my parenting time until we can get this figured out because it wasn't working. And then the other parent was like, see, He's, 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 he knows he's caught. He knows we're, we're onto him. And so he does, he's, he's reducing his parenting time and, and all that stuff can happen. And, 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 and it, right. that had to be remedied. That had to be, that had to be right. found out in our, in our right. evaluation. It was really hard to right. get to the bottom of that. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm reducing my 
parenting time because my kids are caught in the middle and it's causing them a lot of distress. So I'm going to give them temporary relief. And then the alienating, alienating parent says, see, he doesn't love his children. He's reducing his parenting time. So, and again, he was, you know, this person was stuck in, in that dilemma. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, let's go to the, the dilemma number four that we identify here. It says you're either actively challenge your children's false or exaggerated narrative. So you're like going after the confabulations and then you run the risk of shaming them um, and making them feel bad about themselves because they're not being truthful. Um, and then you're being accused of calling them liars and, and escalating conflict because you're getting into these conflicts about what happened and what didn't happen. Um, or, the other side of the dilemma is you reduce the conflict by not actively challenging the false narrative. And then this allows for that encapsulated delusional belief system, which maybe you can describe a little bit what we mean by that, Zach, to grow and worsen. Yeah. So we start with the encapsulated delusional belief system. A lot of times we see this issue with these children being centered around that soul relationship with the targeted parent where we see these kids thriving in a lot of other places of their lives and um and this alienating parent being somewhat normative in the way that they parent these kids in other domains like in school and extracurriculars and they see this child is very well adjusted and are able to have good positive coping skills but within the relationship with the targeted parent they see all these things happening such as abuse and neglect and bad parenting and these kids are overwhelmed and not able to cope with all these things that are going on and it just becomes this encapsulated thing so anything that tangentially touches that relationship with the targeted parent gets poisoned by that and so anything that right. comes in contact any other professional that comes in contact with the case by way of that targeted parent becomes sided with that targeted parent. And then that becomes problematic as well. And it just becomes this echo chamber <clears throat> for this negativity. Um, it can metastasize even further. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. And I think that we've seen parents that get into, okay, I'm going to prove that their narrative is false and they're exaggerating, distorting. So I'm going to get some audio visual footage. And so in this 21st century, we're all carrying around video cameras and cameras and right in our pockets, right? So it's very accessible. And so that's part of what Zach is often reviewing is audiovisual evidence that during an exchange, you can hear the parent, you know, coaching the child, or you can hear the, you know, the rejected parent being very calm and conciliatory. They're being accused of being, you know, abusive and yelling and screaming. And so the audiovisual evidence can be helpful in proving, but then again, it's used against them because look at what a creep he's, he's taping and, 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 and recording our, our everything that the child does. The child doesn't feel like they can be normal. And so again, it, it can be used against you. Usually it gets put in this controlling narrative. Like he's, he's tracking or she is tracking everything that we are doing. Um, looking at our every move, we can't, <clears throat> We're stepping on eggshells because of all of these ways that we're being tracked and observed and all that. And just it, we see that narrative come into play a right. lot when, when this type of stuff is introduced. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, so that is hard with working with your kids. Um, you know, Amy Baker has a um, uh, an approach in her book. I forget the if you Google Amy Baker, she's got, you know, how to function as a, a rejected parent. But she's got a five-step process of 
challenge a, a child's narrative. You just say, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad you feel comfortable talking to me. You give them a little empathy. And then you say, what I hear you saying is that you thought X, Y, Z happened. Um, is that what, is that what, is that what do you think happened? Yep. Yep. Well, what I remember about it is this, and then you do the contradiction and help them wrestle with the tension of what you experienced and what was reality. And then you then thank them for sharing their feelings and thoughts. And I want you to continue to come to me. So she has a methodology for how to challenge these distorted narratives versus just saying, that's a freaking lie. I don't ever want you to say that. I mean, getting into arguments with your kids, that's just not going to help. No, no, yeah. definitely not. Yeah. Okay. The final one here is, um, um, you either work on a parallel co-parenting relationship and Zach, maybe you can explain the difference between cooperative and parallel, but to reduce the conflict and set up a lot of structure and rules around things, or you attempt to be a cooperative co-parenting relationship and then potentially invite conflict. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. We deal with this type of work with our, with our parent coordination and co-parenting counseling as well. Um, right. Setting up a parallel co-parenting relationship is, is by definition separated in terms of how the, with a, with a, a reduced lack of a reduced amount of communication between the parents on a daily day basis. On the opposite side of the spectrum, cooperative co-parenting is very communicative. It's very much, hey, here's what's going on. Here's what happened in my house. You know, I just want to give you a heads up so you can prepare for it on this one. And then that that, that gets reciprocated. And there's a lot of just cooperation and, and communication. And you so as making you're decisions on the fly, you exactly. don't have to have all the rules. Exactly. And yeah, hey, what yeah. do you think about the sleepover this weekend? What's your opinion? You know, right. and what, what do you think? And there's just right. not there's none of that in the parallel co-parenting. If the kid is with that parent, it's that parent's domain. If the kid was with the other parent, it's that parent's domain. Right. Yeah. So then these these uh, targeted parents, again, will want to go into a parallel co-parenting relationship because they, if they go into a cooperative one, it gets, there's a lot of manipulations. There's a lot of, um, 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 you know, taking advantage of someone's graciousness and saying, okay, yeah, you can, you can have my, uh, he can go do a, go to the special occasion with you during my parenting time. And then it's not reciprocated. And so then parents, who are targeted will start getting more into a parallel co-parenting relationship. And then they're seen as rigid and inflexible and they don't like to work with me. And, and so again, the dilemma plays out. This would be a, a callback to what we mentioned earlier with the, the vacation scenario is, is I'm not going to tell you about my vacation because it's my vacation. I don't want you to poison the well. That is, that is the, uh, an example of a parent going towards more of a parallel co-parenting structure. And so, right. Hey, I want this to be my my space. I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to keep the kids safe. I'm going to do the right thing here, but it's I don't need you need you button in. And so, <laughs> but then like I mentioned earlier is you're ambushing us. You're distant. You're not you're not I can't, I don't know where you're going. How am I supposed to contact them if I need to contact them? And all these ways where it's seen as sequestering and and, right. and <clears throat> division and and controlling and all these things. Yeah. Right. So yeah, so those are the five, but one of the things that we didn't talk about that I think intersects with all five of these on some level that I think is important for us to mention before we kind of wind things down is that the intersection with mental health professionals and how mm. mental health professionals unwittingly get weaponized and sometimes get in over their head, get out of their lane, um, don't, meet with one, don't meet with the rejected parent, the target parent. 
I mean, the alienated parent sets the table for the uh, for the uh, counseling, and it, the therapist thinks they're working with a, a abuse and neglected child, where there's estrangement uh, dynamics, and they're trained in child abuse and neglect, and so they start treating the child as though this alleged um, targeted parent is neglectful and abusive, and they unwittingly um, contribute to an alienation dynamic. Yeah, we see that. Yeah, a lot, and, and the tricky part is for the, the catch twenty two. It's some um, some parallels and maybe our litigation one is is do do the parents engage with this mental health provider? Do they try to be um, uh, participatory in the mental health process? Do they try to coordinate <clears throat> care? Do they try to be a part of that um, of that treatment, knowing that it's it's pointed in the wrong direction and not right. and being counterproductive? Or do they try to take the kid out of that scenario? Do they try to move on to a different provider? But then one you're contributing to this to this um worsening of of the dynamic or you are seen as controlling and un, and 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 un, inconsiderate of the child's feelings by taking them out of this therapeutic environment that they've grown to trust and and, right. and engage with and so yeah you're really put in this catch 22 of how do i how do i approach right. this <laughs> thing that i i see from my perspective as being really right. painful and really terrible for my kid right and again, that's what oftentimes causes a um, targeted parent to go get an attorney and go to the court and try to get the courts involved. Um, and because they feel like they can't win with these dilemmas and they just need to have some kind of judicial opinion. And oftentimes that's how we get involved with these evaluations because attorneys go in and argue, well, this counseling is really good for the child. No, this counseling is destructive and making it worse. Well, I don't know what's going on. The judge says, so let's just get an evaluation. And then sometimes we see um, cases come to us because they've tried mental health professionals, counselors that haven't worked. Yeah, yeah. And, and you can you can see that even these these uh, therapeutic relationships can manifest as as CPS reports because of being mandated right. reporters. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, the targeted parent is is. Uh, is engaging with these and plan, uh, setting the table for these children to go into these sessions and talk about abuse. And obviously as mandated reporters, as mental health professionals, we have to talk about it. We have to, we're, right. that's what the definition of mandated is. And so all of a sudden it becomes the system that perpetuates this dynamic and it needs to be intervened with. It needs to be broken. Right. Otherwise it's just going to continue and continue. It's, right. yeah, it's frustrating and sad. Yeah, it is. So yeah, so as we wind down, I just just want to again to our listeners um, be able to, you know, point out that um, you know parental alienation is under the umbrella of abuse, and we tend to think of is is it abuse or is it parental alienation? The bigger umbrella is that there is a, some form of abuse going on, um, because for a child to reject and refuse parenting time with an average parent or a good enough parent or a really good parent. Is, is, is destructive of the child's well-being. They lose out on social capital. And once they age out, if we, you know, you've seen the comments and some of the articles on the Men's Resource Center where we've written about the five mistakes and such, mm. go in and read the comments and you'll be heartbroken by the number of parents who, um, who have adult children who thought that maybe if I'm not litigious, I'll just let the child you know, make some decisions and they'll come back to me when they, when they're 19, 20. And what we hear is that oftentimes they don't. And there's these disconnects, um, from children for, for lifetime. So this is critical stuff. 
Yeah, and we also have seen some clients come in that were children of alienation and were alienated from parents, and then all of a sudden they get to a point in their life where that parent passes and they are left with this wound, um, this, right. this spiritual wound, um, emotional wound that they'll never be able to never be able to heal because they were never right. get to this point in their life where they realize that they didn't need to reject this parent. Right. Um, and and so that that child is and now an adult is is permanently damaged by something that something right. like this. It's it's really right. sad. Yeah, it is. So we get a lot of um gratification. I know as we end is, you know, we do a lot of different things, evaluations, parent coordination and reunification. But one of the th things that I enjoy, I know you do too, Zach, is is the coaching that we do with rejected and targeted parents because they're they're in this foreign landscape trying to navigate, you know, mental health professionals, the legal professionals, they got to do an evaluation. They're dealing with kids um, on weekends acting out and they're wondering how to respond. What do we do with these, these false narratives? And we get a lot of uh, satisfaction with being able to work with these parents, you know, either via Zoom or on the phone or whatever we do to, to help them and guide them and shepherd them through these uh, legal and mental health processes and that's very satisfying work yeah it's 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 hard work and it's a challenge as we've outlined in in this yeah. podcast today there's a lot of um a lot of scenarios that become really challenging and difficult but obviously it's it's good work to be able to help help our clients um, try to navigate those those really murky waters so right yeah yeah and hopefully we could stop the cancer from growing and they can go into remission and they can you know um, salvage their relationship with their children um, because those are, those are precious and you don't want to lose those. So, Absolutely not. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Zach, for helping me talk through this. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Mel. Thanks for listening to another episode of Revealing Men. If you're looking for more information about counseling, coaching, and consultative services, please visit the Men's Resource Center of West Michigan online at menscenter.org. Also, feel free to contact us on our website if you have questions about this segment, ideas for a topic, or would like to be a guest on the Revealing Men podcast. Please take a moment to subscribe and leave us a rating so others can find us. Be well and have a great day.